Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. In those first few classes, it really looked feeling like I'm the only black person in here. I'm the only fat person in here. I don't have the same clothes as everybody else. It seems like everybody else is like practice this together ahead of time. And like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And the teacher is going to see that. And the other people are going to know that. Why am I even here? I was feeling everything that I think anyone who has ever been to a yoga class and thought that they shouldn't be there. was feeling all of those different things. And then I was like, you could just try. <laughs> like, even if you feel this way, you could still just try. Maybe you're gonna face plant and the teacher is gonna see and everyone else in the class is gonna see and you're gonna be so embarrassed and you could still just try. And I didn't realize how much of my life I was not giving myself the opportunity to just try. I just decided like when I wasn't gonna be good at something, I decided that it wasn't worth it to even attempt it because like I'm not gonna be the best or I might not be able to do it. To see it in that space, in a place where it was genuinely okay to fall down and to fart and to have a tantrum and to be able to practice it in that space, even to this day, gives me what I need in order to be able to practice doing that in the other parts of my life as well. Hey folks, it's your host, Light Watkins. I am back with another story from the end of the tunnel. If you are new to this podcast, what I do is I interview individuals who've gone above and beyond to be the change that they want to see in the world. They share their story behind the story that everybody knows. And what becomes clear is that nine times out of 10, they've always been on their path, whether they realize it or not. And I think it's important to share these types of stories as often as possible because it reminds us that we're also on our path, whether we realize it or not. And just knowing that makes life a little easier to navigate. It allows us to live with a little more intention And it reminds us of what's most important whenever we find ourselves at one of those crossroads in life where one choice may be to sell our soul for a buck and the other choice is to do what's in our heart. And rarely do those two things combine. Today's guest is someone who I didn't know personally before we actually spoke on Zoom. While I read her books and did the research and watched videos and stuff, and I felt she had a very powerful story. When I actually spoke to her, it was a whole other experience for me. It was it was it was like a spiritual experience. Her name is Jessamine Stanley, and she is definitely wise beyond her years. So Jessamine grew up in North Carolina in the Baha'i faith. Don't worry, I didn't know what that was either. And she grew up with some major 
body image issues and hair issues and she had sexuality stuff going on and there was a little imposter syndrome and it was all of it and then she discovered yoga at 16 which she hated so she didn't go back to it for years meanwhile jessamine suffered from depression and anxiety and she finished school but then she enrolled in an mfa program But she dropped out of it to go to culinary school. And then a friend talked her into going back to a yoga class, which she did. But this time she was into it. And then the strangest thing happened. Something inside of her told her to start photographing herself in yoga poses and to post them on IG. Now, why is this strange? Because Jessamine was self-described fat. She was obese. When she posted photos of herself in yoga poses, she quickly got comments about her weight and people started trolling her for being fat. And she continued posting those photos as a form of self-acceptance. Then people started reaching out to her to see if she would teach them. And of course, she didn't understand why, not with all the talented yoga teachers in the world, but what Jessamine eventually realized was that Nobody had her story. No one had overcome her challenges. They didn't have her background or her perspective. And so as a self-described fat-phobic slut-shamer yogi, Jessamine became a yoga teacher. And then soon after that, she published her first book, which was called Everybody Yoga, which became a bestseller. And most recently, she published her second book, which is called Yoke. Y-O-K-E. And she's been featured on several magazine covers, including Cosmopolitan and Yoga Journal. And she has become a bona fide role model for many, many people, myself included. So we had an awesome conversation and I really can't wait for you to hear it. I think you're going to fall in love with Jessamine as well and her perspective on life. But before we get into that, I do want to let you know about my online community, which is called the Happiness Insiders. So the Happiness Insiders basically picks up where this podcast leaves off. As I mentioned earlier, the overall goal of sharing these conversations is to remind us all that we each have a greater purpose. And while it's one thing to know that intellectually, it's another thing to actually embody it and to do something about it. And so that's the goal of the Happiness Insiders. It's a community of individuals who are committed to cultivating happiness within through various inner practices like meditation and gratitude exercises and weekly accountability and practices for overcoming fear. And then to take that more expansive awareness that they cultivate and to use it to create a more purposeful life in every way. So if you feel ready for that type of spiritual adventure, or even if you're just curious about it, you can find more information at thehappinessinsiders.com, which I will include in the show notes. And there's also a three-day free trial as well, where you can start the seven-day meditation kickstart on me. So check that out when you can. It's at thehappinessinsiders.com. In the meantime, let us get to the story behind the story of the beautiful spirit that is known as Jessamine Stanley. And let's find out more about how she came to discover her calling. 
you and I have a lot in common, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you, don't, you probably don't know a lot about me, but I've been researching a lot about you. I'm learning quite a lot about you in this time. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, we're like the same. I got you. <laughs> yeah. We're both from the South. I'm from Alabama. You're from North Carolina. Oh, hell yeah. Dope. Neither one of us grew up around water. I think the first time I saw the ocean, <laughs> I was like 14 years old or something like that. So I was deathly afraid of water. I was, you know, because I, I watched, I grew up in the Jaws era, you know, like I yeah, watched Jaws absolutely. one too many times. And so anybody, I could barely take a bath without thinking Jaws was going to come up through the bathtub and get me. My <laughs> <laughs> like, God, I cannot imagine how traumatizing that must have been. What a we film both, to see in youth. <laughs> I know I, I, yeah. a lot. I probably saw it 50 <laughs> times. We both hated our first yoga class, but we both <laughs> went back to it eventually and then became yoga teachers combined with imposter syndrome, body image issues, although mine were probably different from yours. We both had scooter accidents. (laughs) Not scooter, where, when? Oh my goodness. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that later on in the conversation. (laughs) We both have released a couple of books, spiritually themed Mm -hmm. books. We're both currently home free and we both kind of have an interesting relationship with capitalism. So what I would love to do is start off talking about your childhood, just so we can get the foundation and help people understand how someone such as yourself can end up writing these amazing books and having such an amazing impact on the world and be on the cover of Cosmopolitan Magazine and Yoga Journal and, you know, this girl from North Carolina who somebody would have looked at and not guessed in a million years. (laughs) That you would be on the cover of Cosmopolitan Magazine. True story. True story. True story. (laughs) So how in the hell does that happen? All right. So my first question is, what was your favorite toy as a child? You know, I always loved Barbie. I loved Barbies. I loved dolls. Or activity. It could be an activity. It doesn't necessarily have to be I mean, like my... my My favorite thing to do when I was a kid was definitely sing and dance and like recreate things that I like listened to. I would make everybody <laughs> listen to me sing. And if there was a talent show, I was in it. And I mean, I think even now that is the source of so much conflict in my spiritual teaching practice, because I know that about myself. I know that I have sought the limelight. I know that I've sought the glow. And it's something that I, I also know is astrologic. I like, I'm, <laughs> I think I get it all, but I feel a lot of conflicted feelings about that. But it was definitely my love. My spirit was set aflame as a child. Your mom performed. was a singer. So were you inter- were you yeah. imitating her or were you just I don't know if it was imitation. Her? I don't know if it was imitation so much as just what we do. Everyone in my family sings. She is a gospel singer and still tours and sings to this day. We sang at the Baha'i Center a lot. I grew up in the Baha'i Faith. Like we sang at the Baha'i Center all the time. Her, me, and my grandmother. She I think we're maybe the two of us were imitating her. (laughs) Like she was an incredible human being. And the way that she sang was totally unlike anyone else. And she had like a tenor voice, a very deep voice and very brassy. And my mom is more of like a, she's a soprano, but more angelic, like sweet. And the older I get, the more I am an alto 
and also deeper. I think that we all just sang together because we were meant to sing together. They told me that my great grandfather, he sang, he was the one that they were imitating. So I guess we were all imitating each other, but I think we were doing what our people do, which is sing. And it's something that I've had a lot of conflict with though. Like the the showmanship of it, you know what I mean? That part has been hard for me. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. If you can think back to Little Jessamine, what did they call you, by the way? I know all black people have nicknames. What was yours? (laughs) Totally. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I'm Jessamina Pompina was my was my name when I was a little kid. But I've Jessamina always been Jessamine. My father is Jesse. So whenever people would say like the shorter version of Jessamine, I'd be like, that's my father. And so my Instagram handle is my name is Jessamine because I went through this phase of like, I need to say who I am. I need to stand claim in my it. name and claim it. But I'm Jessamine. When you were singing as a kid, do you mm. recall what you got from that? Was it was it a form of expression mm. or were you looking for attention or did you feel like that was I like a really that, raw talent? Yeah, I don't really know how to explain it. It's just like a thing to do, a thing, a way to express emotion. Even now, that's exactly what it is. And I used to be, I mean, all through high school, I thought that I was going to be a singer, that I was going to study musical theater in school. And then I came to this place with it where it was like, is this something that I love enough to eat it? Because if you if you perform for a living, eventually you have to be able to eat your love of that. <laughs> like it's mm. because you are not going to be able to rely on any way. You have to be doing it for the love of it. And I was like, I don't love it like that. I don't mm. care about it like that. But since then, and I could also say that when I was in high school, I went to a predominantly white all-girls boarding school in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. It's a very specific kind of Southern 
finishing school kind of experience. And my choral teacher really valued voices, like a light soprano type of voice. And she did not like a deeper alto voice like mine. There are a lot of things that happened to me during that experience that made me feel like I don't want to be criticized by people like this for this thing in my life. Mm. I don't know how else to put it. So that contributed to me being like, I don't want to study this anymore. I don't want to do this as my life's work. Mm. But now singing is my favorite thing. (laughs) It's my most favorite thing. It is the thing that makes me feel the happiest because it is something that is just for me. And it doesn't have anything to do with anyone else. And I don't need to worry about eating it or whether or not other people like it or right. how much money I can make from it or any of that. It's like breathing. That's the right. thing it's like. It's like breathing. Right. Are you a musician? I appreciate music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a... exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I played the flutophone in, in like elementary school. And I think that was the last instrument that I actually was that had picked up. But I love music. And but I ironically, my parents didn't ever really listen to music in the house when we were growing Interesting. up. Interesting. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I didn't know a lot of the classic songs like Stevie Wonder. And I mean, we listened yeah. to Michael Jackson because we came up in the MTV era. But prior to that, I didn't know any like Bob Dylan or any Rolling yeah. Stones. Like I knew the names, but I couldn't, yeah. I didn't know any of the, of the music because it was pretty quiet in our house growing up. What was it like in your house growing up in terms of the vibe, right? Like I know you guys, when you Mm -hmm. said you were Baha'i, I think you were third generation Baha'i or something like Mm -hmm. that. What does that even Mm -hmm. mean? Absolutely. In in relation to a a, a young black family coming up in Winston-Salem. So specific. Well, so I, I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. I grew up very much held by the Greensboro Baha'i community. And the Baha'i faith, started in the mid-19th century and came to America at the start of the 20th century. And it specifically came to the American South because a huge part of the Baha'i faith is the equality of the races. And there was an understanding that in order for us to move forward as, as people, that we have to be breaking down the walls of systemic racism. And so there was much organizing and I don't organizing isn't the right word, but maybe it is the right word in the way that religion is political. But a lot of black people were introduced to the Baha'i faith between like 1900, a lot of black people in the South between 1900 and like, I mean, honestly the present, but especially like between 1900, 1980. And my great uncle Fred, became a Baha'i in the 50s. And he told my grandmother about it. And she was like, these are the core beliefs of the Baha'i faith. Men and women should be equal. All races are equal. Everybody is equal. All human beings are equal. Yeah, the golden rule, right? Doing to others. (laughs) So my grandma was like, I will be doing that. And so this was when my mother had just been born, before my two aunts were born. And they were Baha'is, but they were Baha'is in a very small town near the beach in North Carolina, South Carolina. And 
that means that you're also kind of Christian also <laughs> in addition to being a Baha'i, you're, you're also Christian. So they were like going to church and everything, but they were Baha'is and that to be the child of that means a lot to me. And I think is a huge part of who I am to be in that lineage because they are radicals. You know what I mean? Like they're standing in something that was scary, that is scary. It was very scary to be a Baha'i in the South. I can only imagine. Was and it, I think was that, it, that colors a piece of me. How did it compare to the sort of nonviolent, passive resistance type of Christianity approach mm. to civil rights and all of that, like in terms of everyone's equal and all of that? It's great that you feel that way, but when people are treating you in an unequal way, like how does that, how does a Baha'i mm. confront racism or, you know, mm. inequality? I would say that they are very much the same. That the idea of nonviolence coming from acceptance of the God within and the God that is in everything, and that that is the most powerful form of spiritual warfare. I think that that is something that is a very much at the core of my understanding of the Baha'i faith. And I think is at the core of Christian nonviolence. Like, I think it's the same thing. Like I'm thinking about literally all the different councils of Christians who have done this work in the South in particular. I'm like, I don't see any differences at all. And I think there has actually always been an allegiance and alliance between different faiths to the point where I remember a lot of my childhood spending time at um, Unitarian churches, at Quaker churches, deep interfaith community. And I think that that is such a huge part of the work that we all have to do as a society as well is form those alliances between those who believe different things and seeing the common ground and avoiding exceptionalism and accepting that everyone is the same. Were there any sayings or philosophies, Baha'i or otherwise, that you remember your parents echoing when you and your brother Gabriel were coming up Mm -hmm. that you still kind of recall today? The first one that I'm thinking of is a Baha'i writing, and it says, Noble have I created thee. Why dost thou abase thyself? We used to sing that all the time when I was a kid. Like it was a prayer that we sang a lot. And I never understood the words to things. You know, I learned to sing it because it felt good to sing it and I enjoyed singing it. And I like, I love the, the music pumping through me, but I never thought about the words or like cared about it. <laughs> I was just like, noble. Have I created thee? I was not thinking about like what it meant at all. Mm-hmm. And now at this stage in my life, I am like, noble, have I created thee? This is the word of God. Noble, you are noble. Why dost thou abase thyself? Why you talk shit about yourself? What's that about? <laughs> That's what like literally. And I'm like, this is something that I think about now like every single day. And I'm grateful to have heard it at a young age because it's finally starting to stick. It's like they threw a ball at the wall and it's finally starting to stick. Your mom was also kind of a health nut. Yeah, to put it she is. Casually. My mom was the OG. Like I, people were like, oh my gosh. So like, you're like a fat black person who cares about health and wellness. This is crazy. What? <laughs> how, who would imagine this? And I'm like, I'm literally like 2.0. 
this bitch was the original. Like, my mom <laughs> has always been into, like, as she would say, fruity stuff. We, like, were members of the co-op, the grocery co-op in our town. She had a subscription to Yoga Journal, like, in the 90s, I think. She told me about Anna Guest Shelley and Diane Bondi, who are two, I would say, pioneering fat yoga teachers. She told me about them way before I ever started practicing yoga. I did not care because I didn't care about it. She was into all this stuff, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to be into it because of that. So, like, Echinacea, I remember specifically, she went through a whole phase of, like, Echinacea. She was about green smoothies then, and she's had like a lot of phases with it. But her other thing also now is fermented things, fermentation. But she's just like always aware of trends in wellness. Does she like just read books about it? And that's how she kind of got into that? Yeah, absolutely. She self-educated 100% and been very, very curious, always learning so much, but I think a lot of her learning has also come out of caring for herself and learning how to care for her body and finding alternative methods to traditional medicine to care for her body in the long term. So I think that's, I think that's been a piece of it, but I'm definitely not, I mean, there's only so much that you can be into stuff like that back then anyway, when you don't have a lot of money because we did not have a lot of money at all. I think now people have a different understanding of like how to spend less money and also care for your body, but sort of sometimes now, but then that was definitely not the case. But she also got sick, right? Did she get sick before she went deep into the health stuff or did she get sick after or during? Because that must have been really confusing for you guys and for her, I imagine. I guess. I mean, I don't know. I think it's important to recognize how young we all were, like how how young she was, Mm. how young I was when this was happening. Like when she got sick, I was eight. When she went into the hospital, I was about to turn 11. And that like three year period, that was the three years when I was like really knowing who I am as a person. (laughs) Like I'm like recognizing that I'm a human being. And Mm. so Before that, I don't know that I was really remembering things in the same way. She was really into it when I was like ages five through seven. But then we went through this three-year period where all this other stuff was happening. So that my knowledge of her being really interested in health and wellness was after, once she came out of the hospital. And I think that they were definitely... At least even to the present, I would say that they're definitely related to one another, but I have no idea. When I was in my 20s, I started experimenting with plant-based diet and all that. And I I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier that I had some body image issues and it's Mm -hmm. not an obvious one, but it's funny when someone is overweight or fat or whatever people call it, Mm -hmm. a lot of times it's considered rude to comment about that, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. when you have a guy that's really skinny, no one considers that rude to comment. Oh, you're so skinny. Oh, you, are you in a concentration camp? And, it, and it's like, oh <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. But I had a lot of those comments back when I was experimenting. And I think, especially in the South where people are basically, you know, eating for nutritional value is not really considered a no. <laughs> priority. It's really eating to get full or eating <laughs> for taste yeah. or something like that. So you have people 
who are basically eating whatever, giving me dietary advice, like you need to eat more <laughs> hamburgers and pizzas, real food, that kind of thing. So I, it's just interesting when someone is trying to sort of reclaim their health or at least understand the relationship between food and, and their health, how if you happen to get sick, it can oftentimes cause people to trivialize your efforts. So I don't know your mom. I don't know her full story, obviously, mm. but I can imagine in your book, you said your dad mm. was completely the opposite. He was like, you oh, know, yeah, doing his well, own thing. Is, and Well, I don't know. My father is obsessed with exercise. He's an Aries. He needs to mm -hmm. get the let out. And he was like a athlete star in high school, like was very much has always been very athletic and i mean i realize now that he's gone through phases with it like phases where he's more interested and then phases where he's less interested but i think the way that he is now is like the result of having to stay strong through it i mean my first yoga mat was my dad's old pilates mat because like he has always been 4 a.m he drives a uh, 18-wheeler, 16-wheeler trucks. And so he'll drive for like 12-hour stretches. Or I don't know, that, that might be stretching. <laughs> but he drives for very long stretches. And he has a ritual of like sometime between like 2 and 4 a.m. He wakes up and does like 30 minutes of this. Like It's like a Pilates-inspired routine. It's like always the same. And he's been doing that for, it must be at least 20 years at this point. I don't know. I remember him doing it when I lived at home and like, He's so consistent. And now he's so active. Like, it's really intense to me, actually, to witness. Like, he does a variety of different things. And I mean, he does a job that, like, as much as he sits, which actually that probably is also a part of it, he sits, but he also just always, like, keeping at it, doing something, chopping wood, mowing mm -hmm. lawn. They, li they live kind of in the country. So, like, there's mm -hmm. a lot of activities in the country <laughs> to keep you physically active. But he has never been what. I would call fat. I don't know if he's ever identified as fat. My mom has always been fat. And my mm -hmm. brother, my brother also is extremely active now. My brother lost, I would guess, like 100 pounds or something within the last few years. And he's like extreme. He's like ripped now. I was looking at his Instagram the other day. I was like, the fuck? Like, but I mean, like, I think all of them are just surviving. You know what I mean? Like, I think everyone's just like trying to figure out how to take care of yourself and not to survive. Well, you mentioned that your relationship with food was born out of sadness and celebration. Was that around that time when you were uh -huh. in your early teens? Yeah. I mean, it sucks because I really love eating. Like I love what it is to have community around food. I love food culture. I think it's really fun, but I think that I have also had a very complicated relationship with food because, okay. When my mom was sick, my father was working around the clock to make sure that we could keep living inside. Right. And my mom was bedridden. And so my brother and I would just, I'm the oldest and I was eight when she first got sick. So like we were just making food that we knew how to make. And so it's like, we're eating ramen noodles or grits or whatever. I, I don't even fucking remember, honestly, it was not about trying to take care of our bodies. That is a luxury that's rich people talk. That's something that if you have extra time and space in your life to think about something, you can think about taking care of your body. But generally, I think people are just trying to survive and we were just surviving because also we didn't have a lot of money. 
I didn't have the experience of going out to eat that often. And so it became like a thrill to be able to go out to eat. To me, that experience of treating myself and being decadent, that is something that's carried into my adulthood. And I think that it's something that you just think all these things are linked together. And I think a lot of times whenever people see a fat person, they have their ideas about what fat identity means and what that person's life must be like. And there's varying scales of dehumanizing from there where it's like, depending on how you view yourself, then that reflects on how you think someone else should view themselves. And I just think that everybody's experience is so complex and that our motivations there's no coulda, shoulda, woulda. We all are who we are on purpose. Especially thinking about what you were saying about the things that people say to thin people. There's never any like right way to be. We all have to just accept where we are right now, I guess, is what I'm really saying ultimately. Taking it back to just before you went to your first yoga class, how are you thinking about success as a teenager? You know, you're watching your mom, the professional gospel singer. She's the breadwinner of the family. You're watching your dad work all these jobs to make ends meet. How are you thinking about success? And what did you see yourself becoming when you grew up, quote unquote, grew up? How interesting. What a way to paint that story. That is not what happened. My father was definitely the breadwinner. Mm -hmm. My mother is, I think the money has not been the reason behind singing. But how did I define success? How Mm -hmm. interesting. If I'm being really honest with you, I never thought that anything was out of my reach in terms of the work that I would be able to do. Like, I never felt like I can't do something. But I also didn't feel like I had to do anything specifically, like that I had to make a certain amount of money in particular. That didn't come until I was away from my family, until I got Mm -hmm. to high school and I went to boarding school with people who, I was a scholarship kid at a very much, I was I was in a small percentage of people that were on scholarship at a very, very wealthy school. And I had never been around wealth like that before. And that definitely altered the way that I felt success should look for me and what I should be able to do. But before that, I had never thought that there was anything that I couldn't do. And a part of that came from being ostracized, being socially ostracized by other people, I have found that so much strength and power comes from not being accepted by other people because you Mm. have to find your power inside yourself. I was bullied as a kid. I was not the popular kid. I didn't have the, the approval of other people to come back to as a way to feel good about myself. Like I had to lean into myself And that meant that I felt like sky's the limit. You know what I mean? Like I could do whatever I want, whenever I want, ultimately. But I also felt like, and I'm only really uncovering this now, that the people that I looked up to were definitely my parents, my grandmother. And they were incredible people. Like I'm thinking of my grandmother in particular right now. She was an incredible human being. And lived an incredible life. And it didn't have anything to do. She never had any money. She had like jobs. to be, But she wasn't like, it wasn't important, the job that she had. But she 
connected with people. She never met a stranger. She was so loving. And there are people who like, to this day, speak about how she was, how she would just let them be them, honestly. And I think, honestly, every version of success that I have is just wanting to leave that kind of legacy, to have that kind of legacy, like to just be a good person, (laughs) just be nice to other people, be loving, don't be hateful, don't be spiteful. Like you can be, but favor loving, Mm -hmm. run toward happiness, be full of light. Was your aunt Tracy her daughter? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Her youngest daughter. Maya Tracy is a great person. She is also a huge part of who I am. She was a traveler. She traveled for work all the time when I was a kid. I think I was inspired to travel as a part of my work because of her. Because she was so glamorous. She was always, she was like, oh, I'm in Ireland. Or like, I'm in Toronto. And I was just like, oh my God. And she didn't, she wasn't married. She didn't have children. She's still, she's not married. She doesn't have children. And I used to spend summers with her. She lived in Durham, where I actually have lived most recently. But when I was a kid, she lived in Durham. And I would go and spend weeks with her during the summer. And we would just do everything fun that like that I didn't get to do at my parents' house. And like we would watch movies. And she took me to my first yoga class. She's always been really interested in metaphysics and spirituality and the journey of self. And she took me to my first yoga class. She gave me my first deck of tarot cards. Even now, now she is really in a space of gardening, really learning a lot about plants. And that is something that now she's teaching me a lot about plants and gardening. But yeah, she is my grandmother's third child. My mother's her first. My Aunt Taria, who passed away I don't remember how old I was, but it was 2012. So however old I was in that that year. She and I, my Aunt Harry and I were extremely close. And she was an incredible person. She's an incredible person. But her passing really catalyzed my yoga practice. You went to the first class at 16 with your mm-hmm. aunt Tracy. Mm-hmm. And then in 2012, that catalyzed your so practice. I, yeah, I went to the first class when I was 16. And then in, I was either 2010 or 2011, I went to my first class after that first class. <laughs> the right. very first class, I was like, yoga is bullshit. I'm never doing this right. again. This is awful. And this and is then, Bikram, um, just for the record, right? You went to yeah, it was, first time. it was Bikram yoga. And then when I was in graduate school, a friend of mine who actually now is chief of staff of my companies, she encouraged me to join her at a Bikram yoga class. And I told her I was absolutely not doing that because I had done it before (laughs) and I thought it was stupid. And she convinced me to go. And what the practice offered me and continues to offer me is a space in which I'm able to intimately examine and engage with my boundaries and to understand why I created them. And first of all, to understand that I've created them, to understand why I created them, and then to engage with whether or not I would like to keep them or release them. And it looks a lot of different ways. And in those first few classes, it really looked like feeling like 
I'm the only black person in here. I'm the only fat person in here. I don't have the same clothes as everybody else. It seems like everybody else is like practice this together ahead of time. And like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And the teacher is going to see that. And the other people are going to know that. Why am I even here? I was feeling everything that I think anyone who has ever been to a yoga class and thought that they shouldn't be there, feeling all of those different things. And then I was like, you could just try. <laughs> like, even if you feel this way, you could still just try. And like, maybe you're going to face plant and the teacher is going to see and everyone else in the class is going to see and like, you're going to be so embarrassed and you could still just try. And I didn't realize how much of my life I was not giving myself the opportunity to just try. I just decided like when I wasn't going to be good at something, I decided that it wasn't worth it to even attempt it because like, I'm not going to be the best or I might not be able to do it. To see it in that space, in a place where it was genuinely okay to fall down and to fart and to uh, have a tantrum and to be able to practice it in that space, even to this day, gives me what I need in order to be able to practice doing that in the other parts of my life as well. So that I can see when I am struggling in my personal life or in my professional life or in my acceptance of self, accepting all the different intersections that I sit at the crux of, that in those moments, I can see my boundaries, I can determine whether or not they serve me, and I can move forward from there. You speak so eloquently about all of this now, and I'm wondering who you talked to about all of this back then, or if anyone, or did you just mm. kind of come keep it to yourself or did you journal about it? I know you mm. dropped a lot of Satchananda quotes in your book. So mm. I don't know when you started reading that and, and developing language mm. around all the self-awareness. Well, when I first started practicing yoga, I really did not even know if it was okay for me to be practicing yoga because I mm. was like, I'm not South Asian. I'm practicing in a way that I know comes from South Asia. It seems like this cultural appropriation. I'm not sure, but I think these exercises <laughs> are probably cool. So I'm gonna do these exercises. So like I was doing that. And also, I mean, like, you know, like black Southern, you know what I mean? It's like, like growing up in the South, like people are not cool with talking about mysticism in this way. Like, I think there is a general kind of like, is that double worship? Like, what are you doing? So I think there was a little bit of that thrown in there. But when I went to teacher training, which I really had no interest in doing the teacher training, I had no interest in being a yoga teacher. But when I was in training, that was when I started to understand the spirituality of yoga, the inherent spirituality of all things. I was journaling, but not in a way that revealed these things to me in a way that I'm conscious of now. Anyway. But like, I was just feeling and holding on and I didn't have a lot of close, tight connections with teachers. I had teachers that had impacted me, but not all of them were people that I'd even met in real life. I didn't have like a teacher that I was turning to, but I did have some teachers in my teacher training who I think of as being very influential in who I am now and how I, how I practice and how I teach, how I live. And the thing that they offered me that really allowed me to be able to connect deeper to myself 
was that they showed me that to teach yoga is just to live your own yoga. That there is no teaching ultimately, no teaching in a traditional academic sense. You can memorize all you want, you can read all the books you want, but ultimately it's about seeing and accepting your most true self. And they modeled that for me by being their most true selves. Conflicted, complicated, messy, problematic, like doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing. And I was like, okay, so that that is how I live this practice. Okay. In YTT, we had a list of books to read, none of which I read in depth at the time. I don't remember reading. I mean, I must have. I mean, like I was reading everything, but like speed reading it, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't really, I don't know if I was reading it for context. I was just perusing. I was trying to get the assignment right. I was trying to get a good grade. That's what it was. And so after training, I came back to all those books over time. And some of them so many different times with different translations, different commentaries. One of them being the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which I do quote extensively in Yoke, Swami Satchidananda's translation and commentary. And that one strikes me in a very particular way because of the commentary And the way that he spoke about his own experience as a practitioner of yoga and the accessibility of the sutras through the translation. Like it was very clear to me that this is timeless information. This is some real shit. Like he's talking about life as it is right now. This is not theory. And I think that For a lot of yoga practitioners, especially American yoga practitioners, wherein physical fitness is the goal, I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of yoga philosophy can feel theoretical and it'll feel like, like, what does this have to do with me? Like, what what is this book? (laughs) I I don't care about this. And that was why I quoted the sutras so extensively in my book, Yoga, because I felt like this is real shit. <laughs> this is this man is talking about life as it is right now. And I feel like I need to offer this context for what I'm talking about because in yoga, I'm, I'm going over really what I believe to be the yoga of everyday life. The yoga of accepting the most complicated parts of myself. The yoga of accepting my internalized racism, my sitting at this weird intersection of capitalism and spirituality, what it is to have been sexually assaulted, sitting with all of these different things. And I'm like, my inner speculation is not just happening in my head. It's not just happening on my heart. Because to your point, like, where was I doing? Was I journaling? Is I writing? I was writing it on my heart and my spirit. And in writing it down for other people, I was like, I think that these quotes will help clarify what I mean. So is that one of the reasons why you withdrew from your MFA program? Because your Mm. yoga practice had catalyzed at that time in your life? Oh, goodness. Literally. Man, I know you went to culinary school as well, so I'm not sure how that fits into the equation, but. Absolutely. It all goes together, but it don't make sense. So (laughs) I... (laughs) I was in an MFA program for performing arts management, which is nonprofit arts management. 
And I worked in a few different arts organizations. Uh, it doesn't matter, <laughs> but uh, theaters, dance companies. Yeah. And I was in school studying the theory of management, really. And I was really struck by the elitism and everything that we were doing. Talk about exceptionalism. There was very much like an us and them mentality. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, is this really what I am? Is this really what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Is this, is this something that I really feel spiritually called to? And I was starting to feel like, no, I'm not feeling spiritually called to this. Not that I don't care about arts management, but that I just don't know if this is for me. I remember one summer I worked for the Eastern Music Festival. I worked for EMF two different summers. And the second summer was right before I was going to graduate school. And one of the women that worked at the organization, she was asking me what I was doing the next year. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. I'm going to grad school and do what I say. You know how you do. And she was like, oh, you're going to study arts management? And I was like, yeah, I just love the arts. I love helping people. And she was, I don't know why I'm giving myself this voice, but that, that's how I am in my memory. But, uh, but she was like, if you do this work, you better really love it because, oh, my God. She was literally like, because you're going to have to eat that love eventually. She was talking about how in nonprofits, I don't know how familiar you are with the nonprofit industrial complex, but a lot of organizations end up not being able to do the work that they want to do in their mission Mm -hmm. because they are just trying to support the staff that works for the organization so that it becomes about the organization as opposed to the mission. And at that stage in my life, I was somehow more idealistic than I am now. And this became like a whole mental struggle for me, similar to how I feel about capitalism more generally. But I was like, what does it mean to pour my heart and soul into these organizations, into this work, and ultimately just have a piece of why I'm doing it, just being supporting the organization, not doing the work of moving the movement forward. So this just became like a whole philosophical issue for me. And that was why I left graduate school. That was the biggest thing. But yoga gave me the language to use so that I was able to move into the next stage of my life. Because I felt like what a lot of people feel when you've started a career path and you're like, I can't get out of this. A lot of people stay in marriages and jobs, all kinds of shit, because they're like, I can't get out of this. And that's how I felt. I was like, I've been doing this for so long. All of my education has led up to this place. I've had all these jobs. Like, this is what I'm doing. And I also always wanted to go to culinary school. I'm saying this before I love food. I love food culture. But it felt like, how could I go to culinary school now when I'm literally, I only have a year left in this grad program. I can just finish it. Like, just do it. And then my life exploded (laughs) just like it just did. And if you want to talk about it astrologically, it's literally the return of a planet that creates explosion. But at that time, I was living in Winston-Salem and my apartment got robbed twice in a like two month period. I got robbed. They stole my computer. I got a new computer. They came back like a couple weeks later, stole that, <laughs> stole computer, that way. literally. And I was just like, okay, it's time for me to go. The city is telling me it's, I need to leave. And at that exact same time, a lot of bureaucratic drama was happening in my grad program. They fired my mentor, all of these things. 
a lot of people left that graduate program at the same time that I did. So it was just all lining up in such a way where I was like, well, you know, you said you wanted to go to culinary school. (laughs) Maybe you should go to culinary school now. And that's how I ended up leaving Winston-Salem, taking a leave from graduate school, which I think technically I'm still on a leave from grad school. Although, you know, I said that the other day and my partner was like, when are you going to stop saying that you're on a leave? And I was like, Mm. I guess when I actually move forward in my life. So there's that to chew on. But yoga offered me the confidence to see the boundary that I created for myself. Think, is this boundary serving me? And then decide, I'm going to move forward into something else. I just wrote about this the other day. I write about it a lot, about how people think yoga and meditation makes you soft, but it actually makes you bold because it's really hard to put up with somebody's bullshit when you've been doing your practices. And it's really hard (laughs) to stay in a dead-end relationship and an unfulfilling job and all of those things. So to say that it catalyzed your practice, you had a lot going on at that time. I mean, I I read both of your books, so I... I'm citing some, I don't know the exact timeline of some of these things, but I know you had issues totally. with your hair. You said no one had oh, ever yeah. seen your, your real hair, which I thought was really interesting. And then you had this kind of professional, I won't call it a crisis, but it was like a shift <laughs> that was occurring at the same time. You're doing the Bikram work study. I'm not sure if the scooter accident happened mm-hmm. around this time. You're exploring oh. your sexuality and you're also moving away from the Baha'i faith. So that's a, it's a lot. It's a lot going on. <laughs> You know what it sounds like? The earth forming. It sounds like the earth is forming. Mm. And you're going through all oh this, God, like, literally. these different, <laughs> these different <laughs> phases. And it's kind literally. of creating the person that actually identifies as fat phobic, mm-hmm. who is fat, who decides mm-hmm. to take pictures of herself doing yoga on this mm-hmm. new-ish app mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. Instagram. But we all are, though. We all are experiencing so many different things at one time. So Mm. many, we are all so many different contradictions. And I think that a lot of unhappiness in life comes from wanting those contradictions to not be there and pretending like they're not there Mm -hmm. and saying, no, I'm just this one thing. This is who I am. And there is so much conflict and turmoil that you're harvesting by not accepting the conflict and turmoil that was already there. So I don't know. I, I feels like a very shared experience. But yes, yeah, a lot of different things. And they weren't all happening at the same time. But life comes at you fast. <laughs> it hits you in the face every day. I mean, like, I feel like that's the, one of the things that has been so interesting to me about coronavirus and the quarantining and just the what it looks like to live in a pandemic is that we all are having this experience together where we can no longer pretend like everything's okay. No, everything is great. These things are so good. And now people are like, everything sucks. And I can't pretend that that's not the case. And I'm just like, dope. So we're all keeping it real. Finally, this is fun. I love that. Let's do that. (laughs) What was the first photo you posted? If I recall correctly, it's one of two photos. It's either me in bow pose or me in standing bow pulling pose. And 
I don't remember which one came first. I remember that I was in me and my partner's old apartment on Sedgefield Street in Durham, North Carolina. It was like a 700-ish square foot apartment. And there was no room for me to be practicing yoga, really. So I had to like move all the furniture out of this one corner of the room and like roll out my dad's old Pilates mat. And at that time, I was like going to Bikram classes when I could afford it. When I moved to Durham, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a place to live. So for a period of time, I was just trying to get all of those things figured out. And during that time also, that's when my aunt, uh, my aunt Taria passed away. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, the boat was a rocker. And so I was just trying to like find my stability. And I started practicing at home because I couldn't afford to practice yoga in studios. Mm -hmm. And I knew a few postures from the Bikram sequence that I felt comfortable practicing at home bow pose and standing bow pulling pose were two of those postures. And I remember, even to this day, I have difficulty with both of these postures because they require a pretty substantial opening in the right shoulder. And that shoulder has always been very tight for me, made tighter by around the same time, within like a year or two of this, I fell down the stairs of our apartment and fucked up my shoulder even more. But at that time, I was always like really tight on that side. And I remember I was practicing bow pose and like I had saved enough money or whatever to go to a Bikram class. And during the class, I was like able to practice those postures. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I have to, like, I was able to reach back. I was like, I have to do this. I have to record it. And I was so scared to take a picture of myself because I, never liked to take pictures of myself. I did not have a practice of taking pictures of myself. I didn't know what angle to hold the camera at. Like, I, And so the pictures, when I look back at them, it is interesting to me the angles that I took the photos at because they were angles that I was comfortable looking at my body. Like I had decided that there were angles that it was not good for me to look at my body and that there were angles mm-hmm. where it was maybe okay but the angles are so random. Like you can't really see my body. I'm just like, I'm hiding even in the photo of myself. When I decided to post them online, it was because I had seen that there were other yoga people who were posting on Instagram, their practices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just connect with other people. And I wanted to be able to track my practice over time because it was amazing to me that after, you know, however long of practicing this sequence regularly and not being able to comfortably practice those postures, it was amazing to me that I was able to practice them so that I was like, I got to start recording this because I can see the change over time. And that change over time has since become not just physical, but emotional and mental and really spiritually as well. He described it as a form of self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. What were some I mean, of the I, comments you were yeah. getting from, from those posts, those early posts? I mean, I don't really remember. Like For a while, I didn't really get a lot of comments on my photos. But when I did get comments, it would be people being like, I didn't know that fat people could practice yoga. 
And I was just like, why do you think fat people can't practice yoga? Fat people do all kinds of stuff literally all the time. And obviously we just have a major visibility problem where like people think that everyone who's fat is just like hanging out on the couch eating pizza or something. So I was like, I mean, I like pizza too, but I think fat people do all kinds of stuff also. And so I kept sharing photos of myself because I wanted to share that I'm not a unicorn, that there are really, I'm representative of many people, not just fat, black, queer people, but literally anyone who doesn't see themselves represented in the mainstream. What inspired you to want to teach? I never wanted to teach. I thought like, there's literally thousands of yoga teachers. I do not need to be a yoga teacher. And I had been sharing my practice on social media and people would reach out to me asking me to teach them. And I would just be like, you don't need me to teach you. Like I would recommend teachers and platforms that I really liked. And people would be like, I don't care, I don't care about that. When are you going to come teach me? And I was just like, I went, I had somebody, a friend from Chicago that I met online and she was like, I mean, you could just do like a GoFundMe or something. Cause I was like, I cannot afford to go to yoga teacher training. I'm still paying on a graduate degree that I have not finished. So like, I don't need to be out here. I'm paying for culinary school. I don't need to go to yoga teacher training. And ultimately when I decided to go, it was just to get people off my back. I didn't have the money though. And I didn't know where I could get the money. I thought about doing a GoFundMe or something like that. And I wasn't getting my shit together. I wasn't doing it. And by this point, I'd had some press outlets write about me. And my father, who has never cared about any of this at all, I think to this day, he has a very low opinion of the internet and social media and he certainly never was like, oh, Jasmine, you should be a yoga teacher. Like, that was not a thing. He was like, when are you going back to grad school? Like, this is stupid. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. You're living in Durham, working in a restaurant. You're on Instagram. What is that even? Like, I don't know. I don't care what you're talking about. And one day we were sitting together. My mom had showed him some article that I was in. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, what's going on with this yoga thing? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, I'm thinking about going to teacher training, but I don't really have the money to do it. And he was like, well, how much money does it cost? And I was like, it's $3,000. I just remember him like thinking it over. And he was like, well, what if we helped you get that money? Because this really seems like something that you should be doing. Mm. And I was like, if this dude is saying that I need to do it, that's the universe. Because literally like, He never cared about that at all. And so after that point, I was like, okay, I'll go to training. But even in going to training, I didn't think I was going to be a teacher. I was like, I will get this training and I will maybe teach sometimes if it makes sense, but it's not my goal in life. But when I was in training, I came to understand why there have to be so many yoga teachers and really Mm -hmm. why all of us have to be yoga teachers Mm -hmm. because the way that I practice and the way that I live this practice is not going to make sense to everybody, but it might make sense to one person. And if that one person practices compassion for themselves, and then they influence another person to practice compassion for themselves, that can shift the whole tide of how we are living as a society. If we start to all move from a place of compassion, as opposed to a place of fear, 
that is something that's worth doing. And so that's why I became a yoga teacher. Love that. Everybody yoga. Mm. You talk about the genesis of that book, because that's mm. a big deal, writing your first book, like going from, I'm going to go to YTT to... Well, I had had a couple of literary agents reach out to me and ask me if I had a book in me. Just from and your I was Instagram? Like, yeah, bitch, I got a book. Yeah. I was like, yeah, bitch, I got a book in me, too. <laughs> Definitely. Like I said before, I'm like, I'm like, no, nah, I can do anything, but this sounds great. But it's one thing to think you can write a book. You know this. Or maybe, the, I don't know how this yeah, no, no. is for you. It's one thing to be like, yeah, I can definitely do that, obviously. But I had written on a board that I wanted, I wrote on a board when I was in culinary school that I wanted to write and publish my first book by my 30th birthday. I had no idea how that was going to happen. And then like a couple of years before my 30th birthday, I had an agent reach out that I ended up gelling with enough to be able to work with. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write this book. Sold a proposal to my So you, actually, you actually wrote it? I wrote all of it, the proposal the book because writing the proposal is so different from writing the book it is <laughs> writing the proposal is like it's a whole other beast but sold the proposal when i got into writing the book it all happened so quickly i was aware the whole time of how little i knew about what i was doing and i was very afraid that other people would know that too <laughs> To the point where when the book came out, I was afraid to promote it. I was like, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, I know what I know. And I wrote what I wrote. But ultimately, like, I know enough about yoga to know that I don't know everything about yoga. <laughs> That's what I know. And I mean, I have so many different issues with shame and lack of belief in self. And I think I frequently get to a place of understanding it as imposter syndrome. And also... <sighs> When I was writing Everybody Yoga, I knew that I was going to need to write a second book, at least, because I knew that what I was writing about in Everybody Yoga was such a small percentage of what it means to practice yoga. Like, I wanted to write a book that would be a guide for any person, no matter where you are in your life or what's going on. Anyone can pick up that book. And go from sitting on the couch to practicing downward facing dog by the end of it. I was like, I just want to make it clear that like yoga is literally for everyone. They're going to make you think it's only for like this type of person or that type of person. But literally it is for all of us. And it doesn't matter what your body can or can't do because the one constant in life is change. And as long as you can just start where you are right now, you can start a yoga practice. But that is such a small percentage of what it is to practice yoga. Yoga is about sitting at the crux of the intersections of yourself it's about acceptance and so yoke was really born out of everybody yoga and what i didn't say in everybody yoga when you saw the success of everybody yoga how soon after that did you begin working on Yoke. Immediately after. I sold the proposal for Yoke within that first like six months to a year after Everybody Yoga came out. And I start my publishers asked me when I proposed it, 
my editor was like, how long do you think it'll take you to write it? And I was like, like a year. Cause it'd taken me like a year to write everybody yoga. I was like, sure. like a year. And she was like, really a year? I, at this point, I'm like, I'm on tour for the book. Like I'm doing all this different shit. I was in the very beginning stages of starting the underbelly, my wellness community. And she was like, really a year? You think you're doing a year? And I was like, yeah, definitely. So four years later, I finished writing Yoke. And I think that the first year I was trying to get my bearings. The second year I was researching. And I didn't even know how long I was going to, I didn't know I was going to be researching. I didn't know how much was going to be required, but I was just devouring everything about American yoga history. So any, every one of those things, I was devouring things about America. I was devouring things about yoga and I was devouring the history of all of that, the story of it and understanding where I fall in this lineage and what it means to be an American yoga practitioner, what it means to practice yoga in the shadow of Jim Crow. What does it mean to practice yoga in a country that worships money? What does all that mean? And so then I spent the next two years crying into my laptop and, and eating French fries, eating French fries and crying into my laptop. And then the end result of that was me saying, obviously me saying, I can't be around people anymore. I have to move into an RV and live uh, on the land. So that's where we are now. But that whole process <laughs> was so, the whole process was very much an awakening for sure. How long would you say it took you to find your voice once you became more intentional about expressing yourself and your thoughts? Mm. Because that's, you know, it's one thing to know what you think and it's another thing to express it in a way that you feel like is authentic to you. Because I know you're in Yoke. It's like me and you were taking a road trip and you're just mm -hmm. unfiltered, oh, yeah. talking, shooting off at the hip. Like, was that your first few drafts or did that come out eventually? <laughs> totally. Oh, my God. Absolutely not. So many drafts. Oh, my God. No, absolutely not. No. Okay. <laughs> Like, did you know you wanted to be that sort of casual in the way you were speaking to your reader? Yes, because that has always been, that's always been my writing style is to just talk exactly mm -hmm. as I am and to just try to be as straightforward as possible. But right. I got fucked up in school, going back to that all girls boarding school experience. Like there was a way that we were taught to write and speak. And mm -hmm. honestly, I was not paying that close attention because I'm not, I've never really cared about school like that. But I did get the impression that like there was a way to adhere to rules that I needed to do as a writer. And my writing process up to and, in, and including every draft of Yoke has been unlearning everything that I learned during that period. It has been trying to get away from making the words sound pretty or finding a conclusion or wrapping things up neatly in a bow, having a point to make, having something to say, like all of these different ideas of like what would be worthy of being written down. I've been trying to release all of that. And yoke is the result of where I am at this stage. Because every draft I found that, especially as I started to get closer and closer to the final drafts, every draft was just like, just tell the truth. Stop mm. bullshitting. Just tell the truth. Don't mm. try to make it sound like anything else. Just tell the truth. And every question that my editor would ask me would be like, so like, what did that, what was that really like? So you're saying it, cause I'll do this thing where I'll be show and telling, but like telling, not showing. 
or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the way is that you're not supposed to do it. Yeah. I'm, yeah, like, I'm just saying like, I'm like wagging my finger, you know, in the right. way that I'm expressing information. I'm like, this is how it is. And you should know this because this is how I talk to myself. I'm very harsh with myself and like mm. to a point that creates ineffective communication with myself and with others. And so in every draft, it was like, don't wag your finger stand with and next to this other human being who is ultimately you. So you can just write the book to you so that that's really a lot of it was like, just write to yourself, just write to me. And from that place, just tell the truth. Don't bullshit. Tell the truth. And I mean, it was getting down to like, literally, I listened to a lot of music while writing Yoke and like trying to write in cadence of the music, like letting it flow like poetry. And so in that, it's like you hear a word in reading and I'm reading everything out loud. And it's like, if at any point this does not actually sound like me, it sounds like an idea that I have of myself, a person that I would like to be one day that cut it, the whole thing, just cut it. (laughs) Don't, don't say that or find another way to tell the truth. And like at the end, it was literally, I mean, it's it's syllabic at that point. It's it's cutting words based on like, is this really how I speak today? Not to, not yesterday, not not how I might speak in the future. Is this who I am today? So a long time. <laughs> and I would say that I'm still working to understand what the truth is of myself and understanding what my voice is because it's always changing. Well, I definitely found that endearing about reading the book. Actually, I listened to the book. I didn't read the book. So it even had a, more of an effect. I can I can only imagine you in the sound booth having to repeat these lines over and over <laughs> because you, you you mispronounced bitch or something like that. Audiobook is such an it's such an interesting artistry. It's it is, isn't it? Book recording. It's fascinating. Yeah. All right. So you're in an RV now. You're one of the faces of yoga, of modern day yoga. Mm. Oh, weird. Which is fascinating. Yeah, that's exactly the word for it. It's fascinating. (laughs) Like, what? Very strange. I'm curious, as we wind down, how are you thinking about success these days? Because I know you have, I mean, Mm. I I think we haven't talked about our relationship with capitalism, but I, I get the sense that we share a similar one. So obviously it's not about money, but when you think about Jessamine 50 years from now, you look back, how do you know you've had a successful life? I would like to be happy. That is my goal in life is to be happy. I would like to enjoy this experience because the older I get, the more I'm recognizing how precious every single day in this game is. Every day that I get to wake up and do it again and just like continue living and breathing and there was a point in my life where i did not value that like i thought that it didn't matter whether i lived or died and now i'm feeling like no it matters like i am here to do something and that something is to be i'm here to be and so i would like to be i would like to experience the glory and the splendor of this life i would like to enjoy the breath i would like to enjoy the oxygen i would like to enjoy the plants. I would like to be able to experience. And that's part of why I've chosen to travel at this stage, because it's like, there's this planet is so beautiful. There's Mm. so much beauty here. 
And we're fucking it up so bad that it's not going to be beautiful for that much longer. <laughs> it's going to look like something else soon. And so I would like to see it while I can and really enjoy it and appreciate it. And I think if I am so blessed as to be alive 50 years from now, then that is what I would like to be able to look back and say that, that I enjoyed and I was happy. And I do think that there's also now, speaking to what you were saying about capitalism, there's also now as an entrepreneur and as an entrepreneur with my hands in many different places and wearing many different hats, there is a responsibility that I feel to the people that I am so blessed to work with and a responsibility of how am I showing up? How am I showing up for myself? How are other people giving and receiving from me? And I think that all of that is still very much a tangled up ball of rubber bands for me. But I know that that is also a piece of this as well. Wanting to show up for myself so that I can show up for others. But the way that I can show up for myself and the way that I will be successful is by being, truly being, living my truth and being. Final question for you. Uh, if you could go back to late teens, Jessamine, and give her any mm. encouragement or any words of wisdom, is there anything you would tell her? I would literally never do a Marty McFly type situation because I feel like <laughs> you fuck up history by going back. It's like you, you, you fuck up the future by going back in time. So I don't want to do that because I think that I wouldn't tell her anything. I would let her make every mistake that she's made, think every foolhardy thing, do all of it. That To the extent that I'm still doing these things, like I right. would let her do all of that because I learned so much through those experiences and like a lot of it sucked. Like there, there are some lessons, but many lessons from the scooter incident, for example, so many lessons to learn from that. But I wouldn't tell myself to not get on the bike. Like I needed to have those experiences. I'm hard-headed. A hard head makes soft ass. So I'm like, sometimes you got to learn it hard. But if it was like, you have to say something, <laughs> I would say, I would say, don't worry about it. Anything that you're worried about right now, don't worry about it. There's nothing that you need to be pressed about right now. Like you're worried about, did you get a good grade on that project? Like, does that boy or girl like you? Like all these different things. Don't worry about it. It's fine because you don't, you're exactly where you need to be. You don't need to change anything. You're good. That's what I would say. Beautiful. I love that. And I want to loop this back around to your favorite activity, which was, singing, <laughs> mm -hmm. singing mm -hmm. for the sake of singing, Definitely. for the sake of expressing emotion. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what you've kind of settled into as, as what I at least recognize as your calling. I know that can mm -hmm. change from life phase to life phase, but what you're really good at doing is speaking to your emotions. And mm -hmm. I kind of had a similar experience as a yoga teacher. I used to call myself the stiffest yoga teacher in Los Angeles because I could I couldn't touch my toes. So what I realized later on was that was actually my superpower because I could speak to all of the self-talk that goes on around that and coming into the room and deciding, do I want to be in the front of the room? So when people are in down dog, they can't see the fact that my heels don't touch the mat or do I want to be in the back of the room so that people in the back of the room can't see me, but then they can all see that I'm not 
that flexible. Like I would have all of these conversations going on. And like you say, everybody's having that conversation with themselves related to something, right? If it's not your weight, it's the way your nose looks. If it's not that, it's the way your hair is. If it's not that, it's your relationships with your kids or, you know, it's something, it's something. And it's all happening at the same time. And singing is a way of really just getting whatever's inside of you out and making it beautiful for yourself, right? That's why we sing. Even those of us who can't carry a note, <laughs> we, exactly. still sing. we still sing yes. because that's yes. our way of getting out what's inside and kind of making peace with that. And so I, I just want to acknowledge you for helping us do that by your example and the many fascinating facets of your example <laughs> and your I, presence. You have such a wonderful quality of presence. You know, I, I, you have your own podcast. And so you know what it's like to talk to people and interview people. And there's definitely a difference when someone is giving you stock answers versus someone who's like really there with you. So I just want to acknowledge you and appreciate you for showing up, being present in your RV in West Central Pennsylvania. <laughs> Pennsylvania. Yes. I I appreciate that you are able to find beauty in the fact that I can't remember things. Like I don't memorize things. So that's why I don't have stock answers. <laughs> Maybe no, if I was great. better at memorizing, I could give some stock answers. Yes. Well, that's what's great about your books too, is that they're pretty autobiographical, you know, even though they have wonderful wisdom woven within the stories, but you know, the stories tie it all together. And I recommend every person who is even remotely feeling insecure or just, you know, not themselves to get a copy of that book and, and listen to it and feel empowered from hearing how you express your life experiences. And like, we didn't get into like 75% of what I really wanted to talk to because there's so much there. <laughs> there's so much to unpack. <laughs> you know? Part two. Well, we haven't you, talked about you, cannabis. We haven't talked about the scooter. We haven't talked about queer, being queer in, in the Baha'i faith and how they feel about that and all these things. But yeah, part two. Let's do a part two. Well, your name is so apt. I cannot. You are, your name is exactly right. You are exactly that. Thank you for shining so brightly. I'm Thank so you. grateful for the opportunity to have spent time with you, truly. Yeah, I'm glad we had a chance to connect. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to cross paths in person at some point mm -hmm. and, uh, and then we can continue on the conversation. But I am a fan and I hope to spread your stories as far and as wide as possible. So thank you for being in the world and doing what you do. The feeling is mutual, truly. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Jessamine Stanley. Jessamine's books, Everybody Yoga and Yoke, are currently available everywhere books are sold. And to learn more about her work and her podcasts and her amazing yoga app, I would suggest starting with her website, which is jessaminestanley.com. That's spelled J-E-S-S-A-M-Y-N. S-T-A-N-L-E-Y dot com. And her Instagram is at my name is Jessamine. 
And of course, we'll put the links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you will see announcements for my audio book for Knowing Where to Look, which is out now. It's read by me, of course. And it includes some bonus commentary about the backstory of some of the more personal doses of inspiration included in the book. So if you are a fan of the hardcover copy of Knowing Where to Look, you will love the audiobook as it is a perfect companion to that version. So definitely check that out when you can. You can also get information on my Happiness Insiders community on the website, which has a free three-day trial and a complimentary seven-day meditation kickstart if you join. And being a part of that community will allow us to work together and I can answer your questions and it will change your life from the inside out sooner rather than later. So just go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information about that and to start your free three-day trial. Finally, if you can subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating or review, that would be the best way that you can help me share these conversations with other people who may be struggling to find their purpose or their calling. Ratings matter way more than you probably realize when it comes to making this podcast more searchable. I do not have advertisers or sponsors, so this is very much a labor of love for me, and each episode takes hours and hours of pre and post production and just a very tiny way that you can help is to take 10 seconds to rate the podcast all you do is you look at your screen you click the name of the podcast you scroll down past the previous episodes you should see five stars and just click the star on the far right and you left the rating so thank you in advance for that and i really hope to see you back here next week for the next story from the end of the tunnel until then As always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, that's very important, and please keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one has told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.